Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. It was a beautiful, sunny Tuesday morning in New York City on September 11, 2001. Michael Hinkson, blind since birth, and his guide dog, Roselle, had arrived early at his office on the 78th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center to set up for a meeting. Little did Michael know that their building and the South Tower were about to be struck by airplanes commandeered by terrorists. What ensued would test both Michael and his dog in ways he could never have imagined. In this episode, marking the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, our guest, Michael Hankson, will tell us how a lifetime of learning, determination, and reliance on his other senses, along with Roselle's training, helped prepare them to navigate over 1,400 stairs, which led them out of the building and eventually to safety. I'd now like to welcome Michael Hankson to our show. Welcome, Michael. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, we are honored to have you, and I know this is going to be a tremendous interview because I have read your book, Thunderdog, The True Story of a Blind Man, His Guide Dog, and the Triumph of Trust. It's just an amazing, amazing book. Well, thank you. I understand that you found it very dog friendly and it gave you a chance to take longer dog walks because you got the audio version you told me. So uh, we appreciate that. So I, I haven't really talked to too many people who have said, I read your book while walking dogs, but uh, I now suggest it. So great idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my dog lost about five pounds. And I might have lost a few pounds, too, because I didn't want to bring my dog's name is Bates. I didn't want to bring him home because I was just getting like to the next part of the story. And it just had us riveted. So thank you for the book. So so now it's a diet book, which uh, is great. (laughs) Now, I, I have to ask, where did you get Bates, the name Bates? Interesting story. So we got Bates. We adopted him. He was a rescue dog from Kentucky. And we were enthralled with the series Downton Abbey. Ah, okay. I know the connection. (laughs) Yeah, the father's name was Bates, and we liked Bates' character. So we named him Bates. At first, I thought it was a little kind of funny, and would he respond to it? But now he's our Bates. That's great. Anyway, so I want to start off by asking you, Michael, where were you born and raised? Born on the south side of Chicago and lived in Chicago for five years. It was there about four months after I was born and I was born two months premature, but four months after I was born, my aunt discovered that I didn't seem to react to sunlight. So my mom and dad took me to the hospital and discovered that I, in fact, was blind. The doctors in the hospital said that that was going to be a very serious problem for the family and that what they should really do with me was to send me to a home, to a place for handicapped children, because I would take up all the love that the family had to offer and no blind child could amount to anything anyway. My parents rejected that and took me home and I grew up just like any other kid. Oh, you know, there are differences. There are things I obviously didn't see, but I walked around the neighborhood. It was in the middle of Chicago, went to the candy store almost every day, like my brother and my cousins who lived next door. 
but after the age of five, we moved to California. My dad got a job there. He had been running his own television repair business in Chicago. That was back in the days that you didn't get a new TV. You fixed the old one because it was way too expensive to buy a new TV. If a vacuum tube broke you or died, you just get a new tube. Oh, that was the worst <laughs> thing in the world. I remember as a kid when you'd be watching the TV and all of a sudden the picture would start to go a little weird. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, dad would say, I got to call the repairman. And we'd come and he'd take the TV out of the house. It was awful. It was like a big void in the living room. Well, oftentimes my dad and I went with him would repair the TVs on site. And that was one of the things that he worked at very well was to be able to, if at all possible, repair TVs there. Unless there were more components than a basic tube or the picture tube or something that, that died, if a capacitor or other electronic components died that he couldn't fix there, then yeah, they would take the TV. And yes, it was oftentimes a really big cabinet, but he did the work there and got me interested in that sort of stuff. So when we moved to California, I was very interested in science and math. He taught me how to do math and, in fact, algebra in my head. So by the time I was six, I was solving algebra problems. And he uh, got me a radio kit so I could build a bunch of different radios. And I learned the schematics and built the radios and played with that. And then along the way, went into Boy Scouts and enjoyed scouting and actually rose to the rank of Eagle with two palms and then Vigil in the Order of the Arrow. So I, again, had what I would regard as a pretty normal life like any boy. Uh, things I didn't do nearly as much probably as some kids is uh, focused as much on girls. Although I was curious about them, but I didn't focus as much on girls and didn't go to as many dances. I love to read. I love to do things at home. And I guess that was me. That changed when I got into college. But I did go to college at the University of California at Irvine. Went there starting in 1968. The school had opened in 1965. And so I went there and got a master's degree in physics. Along the way, worked at the campus radio station for seven years and had a show that was every bit as popular as Mike Wallace in 60 Minutes on CBS. In fact, one of my favorite stories is that the Orange County Jail, one of the deputies called me one night and he said, you know, we have a thing going on here at the jail. Half the people love your show and half the people want to watch 60 Minutes. So we actually divide the jail up. Half of the people go upstairs to where there's a TV and half the people come downstairs to a lounge and listen to your show. And we actually had Deputy Dulhagen on my show one night. We played old radio shows every Sunday night from six to nine. So oh, the best. those are the best. I collect shows. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> That's terrific. Now, I want to back up just a little bit. Tell, you, your dad was a, a repairman, TV repairman. Tell us a little more about your parents and, and like how they met and, and where they were from. My father was born in Oklahoma, lived in various places, and then enlisted in the Army and went to the war. World War II and was in the 3rd Division Signal Corps, actually. My mother was from the Bronx. Uh, I never remember for sure if it's the Bronx or Brooklyn. I think it was the Bronx. But she and her sister were corresponding with these two guys, these two soldiers. And actually, my aunt, I think, had married my uncle, whose name was Sam, by the way. And he introduced my dad to his wife's sister, 
remotely and they corresponded. And then my dad came to Chicago after the war was over in 1945. And they got married in November of 1945. Okay. So you went on to say that you were an Eagle Scout, that you had a deep interest in science, you liked to read. When you were growing up, were there any misconceptions about your blindness that your parents had to address? Oh, sure. Um, actually, the principal at my elementary school wanted to send me off to the California School for the Blind, which was in Northern California, which was a good school back then in terms of academics and so on. My parents resisted that. They wanted me to grow up in a home environment. Then we uh, eventually got a what's called a resource teacher, which is a actually, yeah, she was a resource teacher. She stayed in a classroom at the school. By that time, there were a number of blind kids around the school. So she worked with each, each of the students, teaching them Braille, teaching them other uh, techniques. I had learned Braille in kindergarten in Chicago at the age of four. But then when we moved out to California, didn't have access to it. And so as a result, kind of forgot it and then picked it up again in the fourth grade. In high school probably was the biggest issue and probably what you're thinking of, which was when I was a freshman, the superintendent of the school district sent an edict down to my school, to the principal and to the vice principal, that I would not be allowed to ride on the school bus because the school district had a rule that said no live animals are allowed on the bus. Now that totally contradicted state law. By definition, it contradicted state law. And we had a board meeting about it. And after my father pitched our case to the board and the superintendent got up and said that we had a school rule, a district rule, and then my father got back up and he said, well, here's the real question. He said, you're violating section 643.5 of the penal code of the state of California, which is where the law resided back in 1965. And he, so he said, the only question you members of the board has to have to really decide is which one of you is going to spend a year in jail and pay a thousand dollar fine. Oh, and, the, and the superintendent got up and I remember him just arrogantly saying, is he right to the chair of the board? who, by the way, was a lawyer and a lawyer who had presided at my star Boy Scout Court of Honor, I will have you know. In any case, the, the chair sat there for a second and then he went, yep, he's right. But the board voted three to two to support the superintendent because he was a bully and he had cowed them. So what we had to do was to write a letter to the governor of the state saying what is going on here. And I had met the governor the year before at a Boy Scout function. Anyway, we don't know what happened, except that the superintendent was summoned to Sacramento one day, and the next Monday I was back on the bus, which is as it should be. What they had done was also to hire someone to drive me to school. Well, under the law, it made that vehicle a school bus. I mean, it's just ridiculous. They was trying to play the separate and not necessarily even equal game, saying uh, blind kids are just not as valuable as anyone else, and he got shot down, as he should have been. Now, your dad had really done his homework. He had. He spent a, lot, a whole Saturday afternoon in the library learning the law, reading up on it, trying to understand it as best he could. 
with an eighth grade education, but he was incredibly self-taught. So it was not magic for him. Oh, that's great. That was, and to have, have your parents supporting you like that was, was just uh, so valuable. Yes. Um, and it was obviously a great example for me and it's something that I remember to this day. That's terrific. Now, you, you had a guide dog that you had on the bus. Can you tell us a little bit about your introduction to guide dogs and how old you were at the time? I was like nine years old when my father read an article in our local newspaper about a blind teacher at Edwards Air Force Base, which was where, well, he wasn't working at Edwards at the time, but he was working at a sister facility called Plant 42, which is now owned by Lockheed Martin called the Skunk Works. Don't go there. Anyway, <laughs> so we read about this woman when I was nine, maybe even when I was just eight. Uh, her name was Sharon Gold. She was a teacher. She was hired to teach on base kids. And it, of course, was a story about her being blind. And she had a guide dog named Nola. Um, well, my dad reached out and made contact and we all met. They came to our house, um, Sharon and her friend Cheryl Pickering and Nola. I got to play with Nola in the backyard and we, we hit it off pretty well, but mostly we really hit it off with, with Sharon and learned a lot about blindness and guide dogs and so on. I hadn't really had any blind role models up until then. <clears throat> I knew a couple of kids in our neighborhood who were blind. They were the same age as me. So no real role models, but we did hit it off. Um, and they visited us on a number of occasions. And then when I was going into high school, we decided that I ought to have a guide dog. I hadn't even learned to use a cane. There was no teaching of uh, the white cane in the Antelope Valley where I grew up. By the way, I'm a firm believer that anyone who is blind should learn to use a cane if they have the opportunity. It's the most basic tool that we have for travel. Um, a cane is a device that will go out in front of you. It, Typically, you have one that is as tall, almost as tall as you are, it comes up to your chin, you want a fairly long one. And then you you move it in front of you and there is a specific way, but it finds obstacles that are in your path and then you can look at them and go around them. The difference is that a guide dog sees the obstacles and can go around them or if they can't, then they stop and they wait for me to make a choice. In both cases, I'm the person that makes the decision, not the dog. The dog doesn't know where I want to go, and I don't want the dog to know where I want to go. I want the dog to instead follow my commands. And if the dog won't follow my commands, then I assume there is a reason for it. You see, we're a team, and what we learn when we're matched in at the guide dog campus, and I usually go to, well, I've gone mostly to guide dogs for the blind in San Rafael, California, they have a sister campus in Boring, Oregon. Don't go there again. Um, <laughs> boring, Oregon. Okay. Boring, Oregon, near Gresham, Oregon. But I uh, got my last dog, Alamo, from there. It's, it's part of the same organization, however. Right. But in any case, when you are getting a guide dog, you are creating a team. And guide dog users need to learn that when you're creating a team, each member of the team has a job to do. And what we need to do is to learn to communicate and understand each other and do the job that we're supposed to do to make the team successful and allow the other one to make the, to do the work to make the team successful. 
For example, if I'm crossing a street and suddenly the dog jerks and swerves away, I'm not going to question the dog. I'm going to follow the dog because I'm going to assume there's a reason for the dog wanting to get us away from wherever we are. And 99.99999% of the time, that's exactly what's going on. The dog saw a car coming at us that was a hybrid car that I didn't hear or who knows what. Now, there's always that incredibly rare time that the dog was being distracted by a duck or something and wanted to go visit. They're generally not distracted. So it's very rare. It's bred out of them not to be distracted, like by birds and water and so on. But it can happen. Dogs make mistakes too. Anyway, if I discover that we're really the victims of a distraction, as I tell people, the team will have a meeting and one of the members is going to have to answer to their doing something wrong. But it, it is so rare because the dogs learn not to pay attention to those things. Um, and their lives and my life depends on it. <clears throat> Just as their lives and my life depend on me knowing where I want to go and how to get there so I can give the dog good directions. So it, it's a it's a team effort by any standard. We learn to become as solid of a team as SEAL Team 6, for example. It's all about relationships. And that's what makes the team very powerful. Oh, absolutely. Now, what was the name of your first guide dog? First dog's name was Squire. I oh. seem to be in a, in a geographical rut in some sources. My first dog was named Squire. Second dog, so that goes back to Downton Abbey, I mean, you could say. Uh, Second dog's name was Klondike. Now we're in Alaska or Canada. Third dog, I'm sorry, that was my third dog's name was Klondike. My second dog's name was Holland, geography theme for the first three. Then we had um, three females, Linny, who was my fourth guide, Roselle, who we'll talk about, and then Meryl very briefly. But Meryl decided that she really didn't like guiding and got to be pretty afraid of it. My seventh guide, um, who was a female yellow lab's name was Africa, back to geography. And my eighth dog now was Alamo. So we've had five out of eight with geographical names of one sort or another, which is kind of fun. I would imagine Alamo is somewhere near to you right now as we're on the Zoom call. He is on the floor over here to my right. And if he had his way, he would be up in my lap because he thinks he's a lap dog. (laughs) So, Michael, I want to talk to you about a very, very important but terrible day in American history uh, that you and your dog, Roselle, were a very big part of. But before I talk about that day, I'd like to ask you kind of where were you at in your career and what were you doing right immediately before 9-11-2001. In 1999, I was hired as the Mid-Atlantic Region Sales Manager for Quantum Corporation, a Fortune 500 company that manufactured disk drives and also manufactured the de facto standard tape backup system that companies purchased to record and backup all of their data. In New York, for example, the Security and Exchange Commission requires that all Wall Street firms must have complete and total backups of everything they do. They have to keep all transactions and so on for seven years, for example. So I was hired to be the Mid-Atlantic Region sales manager. 
It was about that time that I also uh, met Roselle. And the first thing we needed to do was to find an office, which we did at that time, the World Trade Center was still less than 80% occupied because of the bombing in 1993 that, that happened down in the garage. So I was looking for office space and I just decided on a whim, I'll try the World Trade Center. And I met with a real estate agent who mentioned that they were really concerned about trying to get more people in because of the 1993 bombing you know, I'm a sales guy, right? And I'm sitting there going, he just gave me the biggest opening in the world. And so we negotiated and negotiated. And we finally got 1400 square feet of office space at $2 a square foot a month, which was yeah, $2,800 a month for 1400 square feet of office space on the 78th floor of Tower One of the World Trade Center. The 78th floor was what was called a sky lobby. Elevators went from floor one to floor 78 directly. And then people could jump off to go to other floors with other elevator banks. <clears throat> so I love to tell people when they were going to come in and visit us that we had arranged a private elevator for them so they could come straight up to our floor. Wow. It, was, it, was, it was fun. Michael, you got clout. <laughs> That's it. That's it. The elevators were huge. They would hold like 35 or 40 people. They were not small elevators. Right. So... We got that office space. I had been in the World Trade Center once before and of course traveled through the, the complex a lot. But when I became a full-time permanent resident again of the World Trade Center, as it were, I spent a lot of time learning everything I could about the complex. I spent time learning where all the little kiosks were in the shopping mall on the first floor because in addition to all the, the doors and stores on the sides, there were a lot of little kiosks selling different things. And I used a cane to travel around to do that <clears throat> because if I just used Roselle, the problem was that I'd never find the kiosks because the docks just go around them. So I used a cane. I learned where everything was. I spent time with the Port Authority security people, the Port Authority police, the fire people, because I wanted to know everything I could about the building. And that was due to the fact that I knew that there might very well be a time that I would be in my office alone <clears throat> because I don't want my staff in the office. I want them out selling and working. My job is to in part support them when we go on calls, but also my job is to support them in the office. Right. So I wanted to know everything I could. And besides, I also knew that if there came a time that there were ever an emergency and there were people in the office, <clears throat> they're going to be relying on looking at signs where I didn't need to do that if I knew what I needed to know. Mm -hmm. And the problem also was that it could very well be that signs might be covered up by smoke or whatever. Sure. You, you plan for contingencies is, is the point. And so I learned all of that. But one of the things that I also discovered was that, and I didn't realize it until many years later, but I created a mindset. And the mindset was, if there's an emergency today, I'm going to be able to handle it because I know what to do. And oftentimes when I went into the World Trade Center, as I, as I went through the building, I think to myself, anything else I need to learn today, anything new? And so I spent a lot of time making sure that I knew all of that. And even once I was very confident of the building and started working with Roselle, 
one of the things that I had to do was to not let her get in the habit of going one way to get to our office. That's really hard in a building. So sometimes I would take an escalator up from the path station, the, the train station that, that we came through, and I would take the escalator up that would take me into the central complex and walk over to our tower. Sometimes I would walk through the underground garage and get to an elevator that took us up to the first floor right in our tower. I varied the routine because I wanted to keep Roselle sharp too. But that also, again, helped me with this mindset of if anything happened, we'd be okay. And so I spent all that time and learned what I needed to know and also got to meet a lot of interesting people along the way. And then, of course, as, as you point out, we come to September 11. Mm, yeah. Now, also at this time, now you're, you're married at this point as well? Got married in 1982. Um, my wife, Karen, uses a wheelchair and she's been in a chair her whole life. We hit it off from the first time we met in January or early February of 82. We got married in November of 82 and uh, have been married ever since. So it's a great marriage. She reads, I push, um, okay. although she uses a power chair now, so I stay out of the way. But the, but the thing is that we develop also a lot of good teaming relationships that we use. Right. And um, so she was at home in our, in our house. We had built a home in New Jersey and we built a home, not because it was more expensive as it wouldn't be, but because of needing to make it wheelchair accessible. If we buy a home and we make it accessible, that would be extremely expensive. In fact, we looked at a number of homes and none of them were totally accessible for her needs. So we would have spent after buying a home $100,000 just to make it work. So it's cheaper to buy a house and build it accessibly because by doing so, you're not paying more money to make that happen. So you're a team with your wife, Karen. You're also a team with Roselle. Michael, before we start to talk about the events of 9-11-2001, can we just first talk about Roselle and what was her personality like? You've obviously read Thunderdog. Have. So Roselle was a pixie. I, the best way to describe her. She was a little sneaky puppy dog that loved to play. When we still had my fourth retired guide, Linny, they would play tug of war all the time. It was really fun to, to watch them go at it. But uh, she also loved to steal socks and slippers, not to chew them up, but just to hide them somewhere. And then we had to go looking through the house to find where she hid stuff. But she thought it was great fun. So yeah, we, um, we had a, a wonderful relationship. You could never get mad at her for for doing those kinds of things, because like I said, she never chewed them up. It was all just to take them and hide them somewhere. Uh, but she, she knew how to play, but she also knew how to work. She uh, did know how to work. When she was in harness, she was totally and absolutely dedicated and committed. She focused. She was not distracted uh, and did everything I could expect her to do. In fact, when I was getting Roselle, the trainers asked me what I wanted in a dog as they were making their final decision. And I said, I want a dog with an on and off switch. That is, I want a dog that knows when it's time to work, it's time to work, no play. When it's time to play, go at it. 
And uh, Roselle was absolutely perfect for that. Oh, wonderful dog. So now, Michael, it's the night before 9-11. Can you take us from that time, the night before, through the events of that day? So I got Roselle in 1999, and for a little while, all was okay, but then she started becoming fearful of thunder. We found out later that the reason dogs become afraid of thunder is not just the thunder sounds, but because the lightning and storms build up a static charge in the air that makes their skin and, pur and fur feel prickly. Then when you get thunder to go along with it, it gets to be a real problem for them. And some dogs react very fearfully to that. There are ways to desensitize dogs to it, but we didn't know that at the time. And that was something that, that really was discovered later. <clears throat> but at 12.30 on the morning of September 11th, Roselle woke me up being very nervous and panting and, and her tongue hanging out. And clearly she was starting to get a fear reaction. And my wife and I realized there must be a storm coming. So we went down into my basement where I put Roselle under my desk and I turned on my radio, uh, my stereo and did some other work and made as much noise as I could. And sure enough, the storm came. Not only did it come, it literally came right over our house. So the thunder claps and the storm sounded like bombs going off literally right over the house. They could not have come closer. And I'm just surprised we weren't struck by lightning, but by two o'clock it passed. We went back up to bed. Roselle was fine. She went to sleep. I went to sleep and we woke up at five to then go into work because we had arranged to do some sales seminars for some of our reseller partners to teach them how to sell our products. My colleague, David Frank from our corporate office had come in the night before to be a part of the seminars because his responsibility was distribution and, and dealing with reseller pricing. <clears throat> he wouldn't normally be there anyway, but he wanted to be there for this seminar because we were going to have 50 people in and he wanted to meet some of the folks who were involved and talk about numbers. I was going to be their technical and local resource. So I was going to be doing the entire presentation and teaching them about our products and so on. Well, I got to the office about 20 to eight. And as I came to the door, I noted that there was a guy there with a big cart we had ordered breakfast for people and he had arrived just about the same time I did. I had actually expected to be in earlier, but the New Jersey transit trains doing what New Jersey transit trains and trains all over the country do one broke down. So we ended up getting in a little late. In any case, um, I got to the office and there he was with the cart. So I took him in the office where I wanted him to set up breakfast and he did. Then about eight o'clock, as I was bringing material in for the seminar, like our laptop projector and so on, David Frank arrived with some of our other early arrival guests from Ingram Micro, our distributor, that actually was responsible for all the resellers who were going to be in that day. So we got the Ingram people in our office and in the conference room and sat them down and let them start having breakfast. And David and I did some final work. The last thing we had to do was to create a list for Port Authority security of all the people who would be coming to the seminar that day. You see, after the bombing in 1993, if you wanted to go into the World Trade Center and go to an office, you had to go to security desks 
and either they would have your name already on a list of people authorized to go on a given day to a given meeting, or they would have to call up and get approval to let you in. Then once you were approved, however it was done, they would take your picture and put it on an ID card, laminate them, and then there would be a barcode that would allow you whatever privileges you have. Typically for most people, it was to just go through the gate and get onto an elevator to go to the floor that you wanted to go on. Right. So we were creating the list and I literally was reaching for stationary because we had to put it on letterhead and then fax the list on letterhead down to Port Authority security. I was reaching for stationary to do that when we felt the building kind of shudder. We heard a muffled explosion and then literally the building began to tip and I'm holding my hand straight up and now I'm tipping it toward the camera. That's exactly what happened to us. The building just kept tipping and tipping and tipping. Now, the reason it did that is because tall buildings like that are big springs. They are made to buffet and sway in windstorms. And they're also made to be able to be hit and survive a hit by being struck by an airplane. One struck the Empire State Building in the 1940s. It got lost. It was a, a military aircraft and it got lost in a fog bank. And so it hit the Empire State Building. But architects were wise enough to make buildings flexible. So our building tipped and it tipped and it tipped. The problem is no one ever expected anyone to deliberately cause an aircraft with 26,000 pounds of jet fuel to hit a building. And it was all of the jet fuel and the explosions that damaged the infrastructure that caused the buildings to collapse. But we're not there yet. The building was tipping. And David and I were in my office. We were speculating about what happened. Um, I was standing in our doorway. I grew up in Palmdale, California. Building moves, must be earthquake, go stand in doorway. Well, we knew it wasn't an earthquake, but building moves, go stand in doorway. A lot of good that really does you when you're on the 78th floor, right? But that's what I did. David was holding onto my desk. Roselle was asleep under my desk. And David and I actually said goodbye to each other because we thought we were about to take a 78th floor plunge to the street when suddenly the building slowed down and then it started coming back the other way. And I remember letting out my breath. I didn't even realize I was holding my breath as, as the building had been tipping, but now the building started coming back the other way and finally it became vertical. As soon as it did, I went into my office. I met Roselle coming out from under my desk. I told her to heal, which meant to come around on my left side and sit, which she did. When I'm in the office, her harness stays on because I never know when I'm going to have to work. So I, I just choose to keep the harness on and she's fine with that. She naps under the desk. But then when someone comes, she was the official greeter to tell anybody who came hello. Anyway, I told her to heal. As I said, she came around and she sat and then the building dropped straight down about six feet. Today, we know that's because the expansion joints I mentioned earlier were going back to their normal configuration. And that's what was happening. But that caused as much panic as, as anything. Like with David, he turned around and looked out our windows. I heard noise outside our windows and couldn't place it. <clears throat> but suddenly David started shouting, oh my God, Mike, there's fire and smoke above us. There are millions of pieces of burning paper falling outside our windows. We got to get out of here right now. 
Remember I talked about the mindset that I had developed? Well, it kicked in and I said to David, slow down. We'll get out of here, but we don't need to rush. Well, we do. The building's on fire. We got to get out of here right now. We can't stay here. There are millions of pieces of burning paper falling outside our window. Well, now I knew what was going on outside our window. There are millions of pieces of burning paper falling outside the window. And David obviously saw the fire above us. But I kept telling him to slow down. And then our guests began to scream because they heard David and maybe they saw the stuff out the window. And they started moving from our conference room into our reception area to leave. But I said, David, slow down. And they must have heard that. They stopped and they waited. And finally... David used what I called the big line. You don't understand. You can't see it. The problem wasn't what I wasn't seeing. I was seeing everything David was. He was telling me about it. <clears throat> but the problem was what David wasn't seeing. He wasn't seeing that I had sitting next to me a yellow lab wagging her tail, yawning, being bored, going, who woke me up? Because... <laughs> She wasn't giving any indication of fear. And you, as you can understand, I know what she's like when she's afraid. Yes. You've probably read stories about animals that saved humans and got them out of burning buildings because they detected the fire first. But Roselle wasn't giving me any indication that she felt nervous, which told me that whatever was going on wasn't so imminent and close to us that we couldn't try to evacuate in an orderly way. And so as a result, I finally got David focused and I said, get our guests to the stairs. Don't let them take elevators. We will then leave ourselves. So he got them out, took them to the stairs to go down. Don't take elevators for several reasons. One, in an emergency, the Port Authority people said you shouldn't take elevators, especially if there's fire. And David saw fire. And if that fire got into the elevator shafts, anyone in elevator cars wouldn't survive which of course did happen. <clears throat> anyway, David took our guests to the stairs and then came back. We swept the floors a little bit, looking in our office for anyone else who was there just to see if we could power down equipment because we knew we weren't coming back right away. Everyone had gotten out. We decided we'd spend enough time doing it. We went to the stairs and we started down. Almost immediately, I began smelling an odor and I couldn't identify it at first. It took about four floors going down before I finally realized that what I was smelling were the fumes from burning jet fuel. I did a lot of traveling for my company, 100,000 air miles a year. So I knew what airports smelled like, the burning kerosene and so on. But it took me several floors to figure it out because I never expected to smell that in the World Trade Center. But there it was. When I observed it and I mentioned it to people around me, they all said the same thing. Yeah, we were trying to figure out what that was. You're right. It's burning jet fuel. We must have been hit by an airplane. But we didn't know what. We didn't know the circumstances. We didn't know how large or anything. All we knew was that we were hit. So the result was that we continued down the stairs. We went down about 10 floors from 78. So we were now about floor 68 when we heard a voice above us burning victim coming through, please move to the side of the stairs. And we moved to the side. They were wide enough. The stairs were that we could move to the side and let somebody walk by. And David described this group of people who passed us surrounding this woman who was very badly burned over the upper part of her body. Oh, awful. We think later, um, you may have read stories about a woman, for example, who was standing in front of elevator doors 
and they opened and the vapor droplets of fuel must have just ignited and burned her. I'm well, not sure, but that, that's our best speculation. But we went down a few floors more and heard it again. And David said, this person looks even worse than the first person. Um, burn victim coming through, moved to the side and people were helping her down the stairs. So we kept going down the stairs. <clears throat> people were speculating and talking, wondering what this was all about because we had no clue. It's so funny that reporters said to me many times later, well, of course you didn't know because you couldn't see what was going on. You know, there's nothing more insulting than people who don't use their head. As I pointed out to them, the last time I read a Superman comic book, he was a fictitious character and X-ray vision didn't exist. The airplane struck 18 floors above us on the other side of the building. No one around me had any clue or could have any clue about what was going on. Right. There was no way to know. People don't understand that blindness isn't the problem that I face. The reality is that the challenge I face comes from the people who don't understand blindness and who put barriers in my way or the way of other blind people or who raise blind children not to be adventurous, not to learn to be out in the world like other people. Um, it's, it's unfortunate that more people weren't like my parents. And I, and I guess I could put it this way. I don't mean it in a negative way, but they were risk takers in the eyes of many people because they let me be out on the street. They let me be out with my brother and, and playing and doing other things. I rode my own bike when I was growing up. And that was because I could. The reality is blindness wasn't the problem. It was people's attitudes about blindness. And we see that so often. But in any case, we got to the 50th floor <clears throat> going down the stairs. And suddenly David, who had gotten a little bit quiet, suddenly David said, Mike, we're going to die. We're not going to make it out of here. In this very panicked voice. Now, I love to tell the story this way. It's cute, I guess. When I was at University of California, Irvine, I also got my secondary teaching credential. And I went through the teacher training and the teacher part of the university, the school there. And like all other teachers, I took that secret class that teachers never tell you about, Voice 101, How to Yell at Students. <laughs> it's a must-have course. It's a must-have course. It's an absolute requirement. And when David said what he said, I just said in my best teacher voice, stop it, David. If Rosella and I can go down these stairs, so can you. And he told me later that brought him out of his funk, which is what I intended it to do. And he said, I've got to do something to keep my mind off of this and all that's going on. I'm going to walk a floor below you and shout up to you everything that I see going on on the stairs. And I said, okay, did I need David to do that? No. Information, however, is always helpful. But as I learned and realized later, David did one of the most incredible things. And I think one of the best things that I saw happen that day. So the next thing I hear, I'm on the 49th floor now, and David says, hey, I'm on the 48th floor, Mike. Everything is good here. Going on down the stairs. Roselle and I go down to 48. About the time we got there, 47th floor, everything is clear. All good. Going on down. I said that David did one of the most incredible things that I think I experienced that day. <clears throat> because Yes, he was shouting up to me, but if you really think about it, 
David suddenly became a focal point for anyone within the sound of his voice. People above him, people below him knew that somewhere on the stairs, someone was okay. And they were shouting about it and saying, I'm okay. Finally, 44th floor, all good here. This is where the Port Authority cafeteria is, not stopping, going on down. And, you know, he gave everyone something to focus on, to concentrate on. He kept panic, I am sure, out of thousands of people's minds because they listened to him. That's a wonderful contribution when you think of it, because in a way you almost became part of the same team and having that unifying voice, keeping you sort of aware of what was going on. It sort of held everybody together. It did hold hold people together. And the other thing that that happened was that I was constantly encouraging Roselle, good girl, because I didn't want her. What a good dog. Keep going. What a good dog. Roselle forward. Good dog. Down 10 steps from one floor then left, left 180 degrees down nine steps, and then we're down on the next floor. And I did that a few floors and figured out that we're doing 19 steps between floors. I don't believe in counting steps. And I never listen when sighted people tell me we're coming up to steps and they tell me how many steps we have to go up or go down because they're never right. (laughs) I mean, literally, they're never right. They forget the first step or the last step. And I don't want to rely on a count. I want to rely on my dog giving me the information or my cane giving me the information. That's the only way that I can truly know what is going on. And so I deliberately focus in in my case and in the World Trade Center on monitoring Roselle. And she'll tell me when we get to the top or bottoms of flights of stairs. But I did think about that and it sort of made my trivial pursuit mind go. And I went, how many stairs we're going to walk down today well going from the 78th to the 70 to the first floor that's 77 floors we're going to go down at 19 steps between floors there was one variation but i don't even know if there was a different number of stairs but the bottom line is 77 times 19 1463 stairs so it's a factoid to to keep in mind which became a chapter in thunderdog but David continued to go down the stairs and keep shouting up to me what he was seeing. And as a result, everyone heard it. And I know he kept people focused. As I was praising Roselle, that was also something that people around me noticed. In fact, I heard from someone later that they came into the stairwell at about the 55th floor, just as we were passing They were very nervous, but they heard me just encouraging Roselle, and we were just tripping right on down the stairs like uh, nobody's business, having no problems. They followed me down. They said, if that guy can go down the stairs and and not worry about it, I'm not going to worry about it. So yeah, we all helped. And other people helped at various times. After the two burn victims uh, passed us, there was a place where a woman on the stairs stopped, and she suddenly said, I can't go on. I can't breathe. We're not going to make it out of here. And about eight or nine of us literally just surrounded her and had a group hug there on the stairs. Roselle gave her kisses. And I said, come on, you can keep going. You can do it. And other people said, yeah, come on, you can do it. And she was able to continue down the stairs. We all worked together. There wasn't panic on the stairs where we were. We didn't lose power and lighting. Although I was worried about that happening. And somewhere around the 37th floor, I think it was as we were going down and it was starting to get a little quiet, I decided I got to liven these people up a little. 
So I just said, hey, everybody, I don't want anyone to panic, but if the power and lights go out on the stairs, don't anyone worry because I have my guide dog, Roselle, here with me, and we're offering a half-price special to get you out today only. <laughs> yeah, get, just lighten it up a little <clears throat> because I would imagine at this point, people are, it's probably, if I would imagine there's more and more people entering the stairwell as you were, you got further down. Sure. Uh, and it did get more crowded and it was a problem. Um, but we continued to work and we kept going down the stairs. Um, we got to the 30th floor. And about that time, well, we were at 31 and David was at the 30th. And he says, hey, I see firefighters coming up the stairs. Everybody moved to the side and let them let them go by. Um, I went down to where David was and I said, so what are you seeing? And he said, I see firefighters coming up the stairs. They're all carrying heavy packs, maybe a hundred pounds of stuff. And they've got oxygen cylinders and fire axes and so on. Well, I knew from all of my discussions with the fire people earlier that if they ever had to go up and fight fires, they had to carry the equipment with them because where would you put the equipment, right? What if the equipment were one floor above the fire? So right. you had to carry equipment. Otherwise, you had to have equipment basically on every floor, which didn't make nearly as much sense. And they were in shape and they could go up the stairs and do what they had to do. Well, I went down to where David was and I said, so what do you see? And he said, I see these guys are all carrying this heavy equipment. They're not quite here yet. But then the first guy got to us and he stopped right in front of me. And in this good New York heavy accent, hey, buddy, you OK? We're good. No problem. Well, we're going to send somebody down the stairs with you to make sure you get out of here. Okay. And I said, you don't need to do that. I'm fine. I just came down from the 78th floor. And he said, well, that's nice, but we're going to send somebody with you anyway. And I said, look, I got my guide dog. I know this building. I know how to get around. We're really okay. <clears throat> There's a reason I did that, which I'll get to. But he said again, well, we're going to help you down the stairs. And then he starts petting Roselle. What a nice dog. I realized it wasn't the time to give him a lecture about the dog is in harness. Do not pet a working dog in harness because you distract. And, and that's something that I tell people all the time. So I just finally used my big card. I said, look, my friend David is over here. He can see we're going down the stairs together. We're good. And the firefighter turns to him and he goes, you're with him. And David goes, yeah, I'm, I'm with him. He's fine. We didn't talk about the fact that normally David was a floor below me. Anyway, so he decided that it was okay if we went down the stairs and that we didn't need his help. He gave Roselle a few more pets. She gave him a few kisses, and then he went on up the stairs. Very possibly having received the last unconditional love he ever got in his life, but we don't know. That is so sad. That really now, why did I resist? Because he's a team. He's part of a team. And I knew they had to carry their equipment up. If I let somebody from that group help me down the stairs, especially needlessly, that would have taken somebody away from their assigned position. That would have caused someone to have to either divvy up their equipment or I didn't know what. And I didn't want to come home that night because, of course, we didn't know how serious things were. But I didn't want to come home that night. And then here on the news that somebody got injured because another firefighter wasn't there to help them because they were helping a blind man down the stairs. Right. You know, I didn't know what would happen, but I didn't need that. And I didn't need assistance any more than David or anyone else on the stairs did. So anyway, we continued down the stairs. At one point, people passed up water bottles of, because they opened a water vending machine. And 
and started passing up water. So we, it was getting pretty warm with all the people on the stairs. As you pointed out earlier, the further we went down, the more people there were. Finally, David got to the first floor. I was on the second floor and he said, hey, the water sprinklers are running. You're going to have to run through a curtain of water to get out of the doorway into the lobby. And then he was gone. I got to the first floor and I heard this torrential waterfall sound right in front of me. I picked up Roselle's harness. I said forward, hop up, which is a command to speed up and pay attention. And we ran through the water and got out into the lobby where the floor was ankle deep in water because all of the revolving doors are pretty watertight um, as, as they should be. They keep in their airtight, they keep the air out, the cold air in the winter and so on. Anyway, we got out into the lobby and there were ceiling tiles that had fallen off that were on the floor under the water and I could feel some of them crunching under my feet. And then this guy comes over to, and I, I met up with David right outside the, the stairwell. And this guy comes up and he introduces himself as being somebody from the FBI. And he took us through, as they were doing with everyone, through the complex. Um, we heard a PA system, somebody yelling, don't go outside. No, no, don't go that way. Go this way. Go into the central part of the building. No, 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 don't go out there. Don't do that. We think that they didn't want anyone going outside directly from the bottom of Tower One because that would have put them right below where people were jumping. But we didn't know that at the time. Awful. Anyway, we went through the whole complex and finally we went up an escalator and out into sunlight at 9.45 in the morning, an hour after the plane hit. We were now in the uh, plaza on the second floor. And that's where we were when David looked around. Um, we were told to leave the area, but David looked around and suddenly said, Mike, there's fire in Tower 2. I went, what are you talking about? He said, there's fire in Tower 2. You sure? Yeah. We had no idea what it was. Of course, it was the second tower had been hit, but we didn't feel it. We had no clue of it as we were going down the stairs. Right, because you, you knew something happened to your building and you were getting out. So when he looked up to see that the other tower was on fire, it just wasn't making sense as to what happened. No, we figured that maybe what happened was because our building had tipped, it had actually tipped toward Tower 1 or toward Tower 2, and maybe the fire jumped across, but we didn't know. No. We had no clue. So we, um, we left the area. <clears throat> we went over to Broadway and went north on Broadway. We we're on the left side of the street, so we were on the west side. Crossed several streets and eventually got to Vesey Street, where we stopped. David wanted to take some pictures because he could see the fire very clearly in Tower 2. He took his camera out and started taking pictures. I tried to take my phone out to call my wife. I had called her before we left Tower 1, before we left our office, saying that there had been an explosion or something, but I don't know what it was. And she didn't know. She didn't know anything about it. It hadn't even hit the media yet. And so... Anyway, I took my phone out and I tried to reach out to her and I couldn't get through. The circuits were all busy. As we know now, the circuits were busy because people were calling loved ones, either in the towers or from the towers to their loved ones saying goodbye. I had just put my phone away and David was putting his camera away when a police officer yelled, get out of here, it's coming down now. And we heard this rumble that quickly became this deafening roar that I describe as kind of a combination of a freight train and a waterfall. You could hear glass tinkling and breaking. You could hear metal clattering and then this white noise of the building just pancaking straight down. 
And uh, everyone just turned and ran. David ran. He was gone. Um, I turned with Roselle. I literally lifted her up by the harness, turned her 180 degrees, and we started running back the way we came. Now a building was on my right-hand side. <clears throat> Broadway was on my left, and we were going south. Pieces of concrete were falling all around us. A few small pieces hit me in the ear and so on. So I had a cut ear. But we kept going, and we eventually got to Fulton Street and turned right on Fulton Street, ran about 25 yards, and then caught up to David. Turns out we had gone the same direction and he had realized he had left me and was just going to come back. But before he could, I caught up. So we started running. Then we were hit by the dust cloud, all the dirt and debris and the fine particles of Tower 2's breakup. The cloud was so thick that David said he couldn't see his hand six inches in front of his nose. I can tell you that the dust and dirt were so thick that with every breath I took, I felt this stuff going down into my lungs. I think I still have a cough somewhat to this day because of it. Oh <clears throat> But um, we kept running. We realized we had to get out of the dust cloud. So I started telling Roselle, right, right, giving her hand signals. And I didn't know whether she could hear me or even see hand signals in the dust cloud. And I was listening for an opening because I was looking for an opening into the building. Suddenly, I heard an opening on my right. And obviously, Roselle must have known what I wanted as well, because she took a right turn, took one step and stopped and wouldn't move. Now, remember what I said about us working as a team? Yes. And I told Roselle, come on, let's keep going. Because I just thought we were going into the entrance of the building. But I realized then she wasn't moving. Maybe there was a reason. So I investigated and discovered that we were at the top of a flight of stairs. She did exactly what she was supposed to do. Oh, Michael, that could have been, you could have been seriously injured, of course. Well, um, but that's what a guide dog is supposed to do. So anybody could have been seriously injured. And, and But the fact is that, that everything that was supposed to work did work. So we went down the stairs into what turned out to be the entrance to a subway station. We got down a couple floors and... We got to the bottom and there was a woman crying near me saying, I can't see my eyes are full of dirt. I need help. And I reached over and I took her arm because I was very close. And I said, look, hey, my name is Mike. I happen to be blind, but I've got my guide dog, Roselle, here. You're not anywhere near the stairs because I knew we were in the subway station and where the stairs were. Go ahead and clean out your eyes. You're okay. You're not anywhere near where there's a problem. And um, there were a few other people there. We stood there for a couple of minutes and then this guy came up from further down in the subway station and he introduced himself as Lou, an employee of the subway station. And he took us all down to an employee locker room. And, and I asked the woman, you know, who had been scared. Her name was Carol. I said, are you uh, okay? Do you need help going down the stairs? And she said, no, I, I'm good. I can see now. <clears throat> so she was able to go down and we all went down and went to a locker room and sat there for about 10 minutes. There was a water fountain. There were some fans and there were benches and we just all stood there or sat there and couldn't make sense of it all. Then a police officer came and said, you need to leave now. The air is clear up above and you can't stay here. So we followed him back to the stairwell that we had been, or the stairs that we had been in. We went up through the little arcade entrance, then up two more flights of stairs and finally made it back out into sunlight. David looked around and he said, oh my God, Mike, there's no tower two anymore. And I said, what do you see? And he said, all I see are pillars of smoke hundreds of feet tall but there's no tower i said are you sure 
And he said, yeah, the tower's gone. We stood there for a moment and then we just continued west on Fulton Street. We walked for you know, a number of blocks. Then we were in this little plaza. It was now about 1030. And suddenly we heard that freight train waterfall sound again and we knew it must be our tower collapsing. David looked back and he said, it's, it's collapsing and there's a dust cloud coming. We can move to the side. It's still pretty confined. So we moved over to one side and ducked down and waited for the dust cloud to pass us by. And after it was all gone, we stood up again. David looked around and he said, oh my God, Mike, there's no World Trade Center anymore. That must have been particularly disturbing to, to know that it's all gone. I said to David, what do you see? And he said, all I see are fingers of fire and smoke and pillars of smoke, hundreds of feet tall. And to see fingers of flame, <clears throat> the towers are gone. We could not make sense of it. We couldn't understand it. To think we had gone in three hours before just to do work. And then in the blink of an eye, literally it's gone. You still didn't know what happened. I still didn't know what happened. But then I took out my phone and I decided to try to call my wife again. This time I got through to Karen, and she's the first one who told us how two aircraft had deliberately been hijacked, crashed into the towers of the World Trade Center. Another plane had deliberately been stolen and hijacked. It crashed into the Pentagon, and a fourth one was still missing over Pennsylvania. That was the first time we knew what really happened. And still, it's crazy. How could people do that? But they did. You had 19 thugs trying to make their will be upon everyone, and they didn't have the right to do that. Right. Now, Michael, at this point, at least Karen knows that you're safe, that you got out of the buildings. When were you actually, when and how were you reunited with Karen? So a friend of ours, Tom Painter, who Karen had known since high school in California, Tom lived in New Jersey. He came down to be with her, not knowing when he first got there, whether I was in the building at home, alive or dead or anything. So he came to be supportive. And I also um, started making my way up toward Midtown Manhattan with David. And we went to the apartment of a friend of David's. But about two o'clock, we learned that the trains were running again from New York to New Jersey. So I decided I wanted to get home. And about four o'clock, we left David's friend's Nina's apartment. And we went uh, up to get to the um, train station. And it turns out there was a bus that we, we encountered and it was going that way. So we got on it. So we got to the train station. David dropped me off. He then left to go up to where he was staying with his sister on the Upper East Side of New York. I got on a train going to New Jersey that took us to Newark Penn Station and then another train from Penn Station out to Westfield where we lived. So we got there about seven o'clock. I went out of the train at Westfield. Um, I had called Karen to apprise her of where I was and kept her up to date with where I was every step of the way. So as I was coming off the train, I heard our van actually pull up and park along the curb. I had to walk downstairs and then over to the van. About the time I got there, the door had opened. Roselle and I went up into the van we got to hug Karen for the first time about seven o'clock. Tom had driven Karen over to pick us up. Oh. And um, then we went home. The first thing I did was took off Roselle's harness because I figured I'd take her outside, but Roselle would have none of it. 
Oh. She went off and found her favorite tugboat, and she and Lenny started playing tug of war. If that doesn't put September 11th in perspective, I don't know what does. It oh. was over for her. It was totally over. And later I talked to people at Guide Dogs and I said, you know, how's Roselle going to be through all this? And as somebody said, dogs don't do what if. She was not ever directly threatened. So when it was over, it was over. As I said, if that doesn't put it in perspective, I don't know what does. But we are different than that. We do what if. More important, we should learn lessons. And that's, of course, a different story. Yeah, definitely. So, Michael, what was your reunion like with Karen in that van? Big hug. And um, then I sat down on the back seat and we just held hands all the way home. She must have been so relieved. Well, she was. When she got up that morning, after learning what was going on, she said, well, I just got to keep moving. I got to make sure that the place is clean because either he's not going to come home or he is. And if he doesn't come home, other people are going to come. And of course, Tom did, as we know. But, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. So she just kind of kept moving forward and keeping an eye on or in, uh, on the television and ear on the radio <clears throat> until she heard from me and knew that I was really okay. Yeah, yeah definitely. Michael, at what point were you the most afraid? I was the most afraid when I was running away from Tower 2's collapse. I remember thinking to myself as I started to run, God, I can't believe that you got us out of a, a, a building and a burning building and just to have it fall on us. And when I did that, and it's in Thunderdog, our book, um, I heard a voice that said, don't worry about what you can't control. Focus on running with Roselle and the rest will take care of itself. And that was for me also the most calming moment because I then immediately felt this absolute sense of peace and certainty that we'd be okay if we worked together. So I was not afraid anymore. And, and you bring up a good point because in telling this story, and uh, as I've discovered, especially over the last year during the pandemic, what I really learned to do was to develop a mindset that said you can control your fear, not to be fearless, but that you have control over your fears. And that's what took charge in September 11th. And so I've actually started to work on beginning to develop ways to teach people how to control fear, because over the past year, in 2020, we had this pandemic where everybody has been afraid of so many things. And most of us face at one time or another, major uncertainties or major life-changing scary events and we become afraid of them and we shut down rather than learning how to use information and advance through them. Well, I'm struck that actually in, in July, I'm trying to think of when it was, it was in July, it would have been July 9th on a Friday night um, out here in California, we saw a news report that said that there were a number of people who panicked at Knott's Berry Farm, the amusement park, because somebody said that there had been shots fired outside and there was there was some sort of drive by shooting. And there were a couple of teenagers injured. I believe that they survived. But people started to panic. They started to run to the exits. There was one family that even lost a little girl. Mm -hmm. It was all panic because they heard 
that there were shots. Some of them may have heard the shots, but they didn't pay attention to where the shots were most likely. And a lot of people just heard that there were gunfire, gunshots. And so they started panicking. And then one family lost a little girl, people got trampled because we don't have a mindset that even in, a, in an instant, we learn to assess what's around us and control our fears. We let our fears blind us and take over. So we're, I'm actually going to be starting a new podcast called Not Blinded by Fear. It's called Unstoppable, Not Blinded by Fear. And we're going to be doing some, some other things. Uh, and in fact, people can go to blindedbyfear.net and they can download an ebook that I've written about it. Um, it's free for, for people to download. Excellent. But the reality is that <clears throat> fear is all around us, but trust is all around us. And what we need to do is to learn to control fear. I will never tell people to be fearless, but I will tell people that you can learn to control your fear and not let it overwhelm or blind you. And so for me, that's what happened on September 11th. I learned to deal with fear, although I didn't realize it. And so on that day, I was able to use information and make intelligent decisions and not panic. Definitely. And your preparedness that also, I mean, you had already explored a lot of the building and the surroundings. Uh, you had a great team with Roselle, but you also learned a lot from what actually happened that day to you and how you had to put all those things together and try to stay calm instead of panicking, which could have really made things turn out worse for you, certainly. Oh, sure. And a lot of people say, well, you know, is a guide dog better or a cane better? And my response is still that a cane is the most basic tool. It wouldn't have mattered to me whether I was using a cane or a dog on September 11th, except for when Tower 2 collapsed and I was running. <clears throat> if I had been using a cane and someone stepped on it and broke it, they might have fallen and been trampled. But I would have been left without uh, an ability to travel safely. And Roselle was definitely an advantage there. But going down the stairs, some of the time she couldn't even guide because the crowd was so dense that she had to walk behind me at heel and I was holding on to the left-hand stair rail. The, the reality is though, it's my job to know where to go and what to do and to get every piece of information I can. It's not up to people to censor information for me. For example, when we got out into the lobby of Tower One and the FBI gentleman was taking us out and escorting other people. I asked him, what's going on? He wouldn't tell me. I know he didn't want people to panic. In my case, I wish he had. It would have made some of the decisions about where we walked a little bit different than what we ended up doing. And I know that I wouldn't have panicked from it. I know that information is powerful. Information in an emergency situation is the most important thing that we can all get. And we need to learn to control our senses and let our fear guide us and keep us alert, but not blind us. Definitely, definitely. Michael, what do you want your legacy to be? That I'm a guy who happened to be able to grow up and be successful as a blind person. Um, I happen to be blind. Blindness isn't what defines me. It's my emotional makeup, it's my skills and, 
and it's the choices I make that will define me. And so I want people to remember me as someone who tried to help them learn lessons of survival and moving forward from unexpected actions that take place in their lives, such as September 11th and the pandemic. Well, Michael, you are an inspiration uh, to me, and I know to many. Certainly from what I'm hearing, I, I wasn't there, but your presence in that stairwell, and even when you got out to, to the bottom floor, I would imagine had more of a calming influence on the people around you who were sighted. It's certainly, I think, seeing you calm and even, even making a joke on the way down would have certainly given me some more peace uh, in a very terrifying situation. Now, I just wanted to ask you about Roselle. What, what happened with Roselle after 9-11? How did she spend the rest of her days? And can you tell us a little bit about Roselle's uh, last years? She continued to be a guide dog until 2007. She did contract a immune-related blood disease called immune-mediated thrombocytopedia, which oh. if you want to know how to spell it, you can get Thunderdog. Um, <laughs> it's a spelling book too, see? So IMT is something that humans can get and, uh, and dogs can get. It's a disease where the immune system attacks the platelets in the blood, typically because toxins were ingested or it's in their genetic makeup. It was not in Roselle's genetic makeup, but she did have what happened to her on September 11th. And we think that's eventually what led to her contracting it. Uh, she still worked for three years after we diagnosed her with it or after the vets diagnosed her with it, but she retired in 2007. Um, Linny had passed, but we had gotten a new dog named Fantasia. She was a breeder for guide dogs for the blind. And Africa, in fact, was Fantasia's daughter. So we had mother and daughter when Africa joined us. And when Africa joined us, Fantasia was then about um, five years old. Africa was two. And Roselle was 10, but still quite active. And you haven't lived until you've seen all three of these dogs playing with one tug bone, trying to steal it from the other two <laughs> and, and watching the team dynamics. It was fun. They, they all were fast friends. And um, so she, she survived until 2011, but then the IMT really caught up with her. We got it to go into remission once, but eventually it just uh, became too much. And so on June 26th, she passed. And at the beginning of Thunderdog, it's not in the audio version. Uh, they didn't record it in there, but um, at the beginning of the print version is a three-page tribute to Roselle that I wrote, not expecting it would go in the book, but it did. What a wonderful dog. It must have been very difficult. I'm sure anytime you lose one of your, your dogs, it must be very tough for you. But I would imagine, given what you went through with Roselle, that must have been a very difficult day when you had to say goodbye. It was. Um, it, it wasn't fun by any means. Retiring her, although it was sad, was something that we knew we needed to do because she would have worked till she dropped. And I wouldn't wish that on her. We knew that she needed to retire. And so um, it was generally agreed upon that we needed to make that happen. But she still got to live for four more years, collect social security and just be a good retired puppy dog. <laughs> oh, that's, that was great that she had that opportunity just to have 
have fun with you and uh, knowing what wonderful working dog she was, but to be able to enjoy her in her retirement must have been a lot of fun for you. Oh, it was. We, <laughs> uh, we retired Africa in 2018. She was slowing down and not seeing as well, but we still had Fantasia. So we knew that bringing a third dog in, especially when I traveled, would be difficult. And her, the people who raised Africa wanted her if we couldn't keep her. So she went to live with her puppy raisers and we, we visited them every so often. And now just about a month ago, um, Africa passed after living for 14 years. So we miss her too. I'm but, sorry. Uh, but Roselle and Africa are probably up there driving everybody crazy. So that's good. <laughs> They're on that tug bone again, right? They are on that tug bone with Fantasia, who has passed. So those three are probably up there showing everybody what for. Well, Michael, you're an inspiration to, to me and I'm sure to our listeners as well. You mentioned that you've got some projects. You, you've, uh, can you tell us about your podcast real quick again? So it's called Unstoppable, Not Blinded by Fear. We're still working toward it, but um, we, I, wanna, I want to talk with people in, in all walks of life, talking some about fear, the fear of starting a podcast. So we should probably talk about that on, online sometime. <laughs> Um, but I want to give people an opportunity to talk about and explore choices they've made in their lives. I want to talk about inclusion and moving from diversity to an inclusive world, talking about accessibility. It's going to be a, a podcast that will have the opportunity to do a lot of different things. So we're going to be starting interviews in the next few weeks. We're getting all the logistics together. But if people want to learn more about it, they can keep an eye on my website, which is just www.michaelhingson.com. And um, we'll be putting up info about it. If people want to ask questions after hearing this today, or if they want to explore uh, having me come and speak, because for the past 20 years, I've been traveling the world talking about the lessons of September 11th and so on. And so I'm always looking for speaking opportunities they can reach out to me at info at michaelhingson.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H-I-N-G-S-O-N.com. So I will always return emails and answer questions. And so I'm perfectly glad to hear from folks, but if they want to talk about being on the podcast or are looking for speaking opportunities, then they can reach out to me there. I also now work for a company called Accessibility that makes products that make internet websites accessible. Accessibility is a, is a really neat product that is a scalable product that is making an increasing number of websites accessible online every day. People can learn about that at accessibility.com. So it's www.accessibe.com. And again, the ebook that I mentioned is at blindedbyfear.net, and they're welcome to go get a copy of that. Terrific. Well, this is great. And Thunderdog. The true story of a blind man, his guide dog, and the triumph of trust was a great read. It was a number one New York Times bestseller, and hopefully at some point it will be again. We're working toward trying to get a movie out, but it's available wherever books are sold, so people can can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or whatever, and uh, it's available on Audible, as you know. It's available in Braille from a company called Bookshare.org, and it's available in large print and a number of different languages, so Thunderdog is around the world. 
Thank you again, Michael. And I wish you the very best in all your future endeavors. And as we are now at 20 years since that tragic day, I know it's not easy for people to remember it and think about it, but there were a lot of heroes that day. And there's a lot of testing of our own wills and courage and faith. And your story is definitely a powerful one. And I think it's a story that needs to continue to be told. Well, if it helps people move on from September 11th, if it helps a new generation learn history and maybe learn some lessons about how we need to learn to work together and um, be more respectful of each other, if it helps people understand more about blindness and guide dogs and so on, it's worth it. Yes, indeed. Thanks a lot, Michael. And I hope we have a good day. Okay. You too. You be well. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.